So, I'm Matt, and like Ryan said, I couldn't leave well enough alone and quit while I was ahead. So, here I am still teaching and helping him out whenever he's gone. Uh, today we're dealing with Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, do I have any volunteers to read this passage? Kelsey? The whole passage? Yes, please. Alright, thank you. So, one of the things that seems to come up a lot about this passage through all the research I did and the studying I did is that pretty much the overwhelming consensus is this is one of the earliest church hymns we have still today. Um, I have never been fantastic about deciphering how something is considered a hymn, something is more uh, liturgical, uh, kind of more in the style of the Proverbs or the Psalms, if you will, because a lot of that kind of rhythm and the, what are they called, stanzas for poetry and poetic language like that, don't translate well from Greek into the English language. Um, but when I kind of fell apart on that on Sunday, Ryan threw me a bone. Uh, basically, even if we're not completely uh, sure that he is borrowing one or even altering one. There were some kind of debates on whether or not it was exactly going to be a beneficial thing for Paul to just go and start changing hymns. So there's that debate. Um, but if it wasn't a hymn by this point in the early or the mid uh, first century, it definitely um, has everything in it that would make it an accomplished hymn. It is actually uh, one of my favorite things about hymns is that they're always very, very serious. They're always very direct about what they're trying to say about our relationship with God. And I might be um, the oldest 23-year-old who just... I get a little irritated with how some modern music in the church works. And other modern music drives me crazy for different reasons. I feel like sometimes it just doesn't have the power and the impact. And like Ryan said, I used to preach up in Kansas City. And it was a little tiny church. It was probably my biggest crowd was as big as this room, honestly. So what did we do? We used a piano, and we sang out of a hymnal every week. And it was one of my favorite things about preaching there, other than sharing the gospel. Um, so um, if you're kind of like that mind, that's kind of where this is going, this very simple but very, very powerful and direct teaching in almost... Uh, song format. Um, does anyone have any kind of first observations about what Paul is trying to get across in this text? What kind of jumps out to you as uh, maybe his purpose for these few short verses? Anthony? <laughs> well, one thing that I always notice when I read the section of scripture is Paul's repetition of the phrase, all things, all things, all things. He wants to hammer in the Jesus is 
everything that mm-hmm. everything was through him and for him and um, the fullness of Jesus. And uh, that's germane to this topic here. So you think Paul's point is almost you can't make enough of Jesus. You can't make too much. I agree. um, Because that definitely seems to be where he is heading. Um, And one thing I really enjoy about this passage is that it seems to seep into a lot of different passages. Paul isn't just pulling uh, these ideas, this description of the authority and the identity of Jesus out of nowhere. He, um, whether intentionally or not, Um, whether it was the Holy Spirit just kind of doing it almost through coincidence in relation to uh, what the other writers had done, this plays heavily into several other important passages. Um, The first one that I really liked was in Genesis 1-1, the first words of the Bible are in the beginning. This is a single uh, Hebrew word. I actually tried to figure this out. Is that why a hard I sound? It's, it's a breathing mark. It's just better. <laughs> well. <laughs> okay, all the commentaries I had translated it as like R-Y-S-T, so I was yeah, not going to get there. Yeah. That word. So, use Ryan if you need Hebrew words pronounced, because I skipped Hebrew on purpose. But basically, the idea of this word um, has four different meanings. And in these few verses, Paul addresses every single one of them. Uh, The four uses of this word are for the beginning of something, the sum total, basically all the parts of something added together, the head of something, or the first fruits of something. And so what Paul does here is he, to any Jew listening to this, they're automatically going to start to connect this. They're going to start to connect that his point is Jesus was there. Jesus is part of the beginning. He is part of the creation. He is part of um, everything that took place in the beginning. The other thing that I really like to tie this into is John chapter 1. Um, I was wondering if I could get a volunteer to read that really quickly. I don't need all of it for sure. Just the first paragraph of the book of John. I'm here. So, one, two, three? Uh, yes, one, two, three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Alright, so, um, if you just look at these two passages side by side for a little bit, you see a lot of similarities. There's a strong emphasis on who Jesus is and what he is capable of, what he has already done. Um, Namely, dealing with his role again in the creation account. Paul is drawing on all these different sources to make sure that no one can overlook that Jesus has always existed and Jesus has always had this authority and this power. Whether And then you can get confused as you try to figure out how much of this power is maintained in his human uh, incarnation uh, and drive yourselves crazy if you want. 
But when we look at John chapter 1, John uses a word repeatedly. Actually, it's the word for word. Um, this is a very common idea in the Greek kind of philosophical tradition, which most of the world at this point in time followed after uh, Alexander, Alexander the Great spread uh, so much of their culture. This idea that the Logos, or the Word, capital W, um, is a sort of unseen, um, kind of a power, an unseen presence that holds the world together. Because they're very uh, logical thinkers, they choose to say that the word, like a true form, or a form of truth, is what maintains and can kind of balances out the world. And so John draws heavily on this idea. It also appears um, in Proverbs 8.22. Uh, there's a brief section there talking about a different idea, where in the Greeks they used logos, in Hebrew they used the idea of wisdom. Again, kind of pointing back to that perfect ideal of truth, that something absolutely truthful, absolutely perfect, is what maintains order in the world. And both of these cultures, um, obviously the Jews before the coming of Christ, just don't have a way to understand how this looks, what kind of attributes this really has. But um, Paul goes very far out of his way to make sure that all these kinds of ideas are tied in together, because one of the best ways to get a point across is to appeal to something that you've grown up kind of thinking, um, rather than trying to introduce a new idea. It's why people don't change their favorite sports teams. Most of you guys are probably from Stillwater for at least a while, or you're here for college, or you've been around OSU enough to know you have to like OSU. And then when people leave here, they still like OSU. They don't just up and change these things um, on a whim. And if there's anything you learn in Stillwater, it's that people do treat sports as a religion sometimes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little cold. Do you want to follow that up? <laughs> he said, even if they let you down all the time. Guess who's not from here? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an OSU fan. Oh, yeah, you went here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. right. Um, so, moving on a little bit. I'd like to break this passage down into two separate chunks. Uh, verses 15 through 17 deal with the interaction of Jesus and creation, Jesus and more of the Old Covenant, the beginning, if you will. And Paul identifies him in four ways, that he is the image of God. And now, I don't think that the English word image does this kind of idea justice. The better idea that Paul is trying to get across is that Jesus is the nature of God. He is the embodiment, which kind of sounds basic to us because we've been told it since we were yay high and it's been hammered into our brains enough that this is something that goes without saying. Jesus is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh. But at this time in history, this was a radical idea. 
that a god, um, kind of speaking from the general point of view of the people, would choose to become physical is ridiculous. Um, I don't know if you guys have talked about Gnostic heresies at all, and it turns into a giant rabbit hole, so if you have a day to kill, go read the Gnostic Gospels. Don't believe them, but understand that these are kind of the struggles people are going with at the time. And one of the most common ones was that no spiritual being could create something physical. The spiritual is good, and the physical is inherently bad. And so they try to create sort of degrees of separation where um, one very common one was that the real God couldn't have made a man that had his powers. That's ridiculous. That God would have to be dumb or foolish to invest so much of its self in flesh. And so they come up with all these weird ideas that you start out with the real God and then it creates a lesser God that's not quite as bright and not quite as powerful. And you go on down the list until eventually, for whatever reason, you get a God that is foolish enough who will create um, the person slash deity that we understand Jesus to be. This just didn't connect for them, that this would be a fully good spiritual and physical being. And so Paul is kind of playing against that because he knows it causes problems in his churches, and it's something that continues uh, in several of his different ministry locations. So the church in Colossae is not special for getting this treatment. Uh, the other attribute that Paul ascribes to Jesus is that he is the firstborn. Now, this gets kind of confusing if you've ever tried to sit there and understand exactly how the phrase begotten comes and trying to get a little deeper with the relationship between God as father and son. Um, this idea is much more, again, pointing to a thick and long-lasting Jewish tradition that the firstborn son was more than just the first one that showed up. The firstborn is almost a position. This is someone who has been given basically the responsibility of maintaining this family. They have every um, possible responsibility to have to keep up the honor of their family, to keep the family name going, and uphold what that family stands for. They're uh, destined to receive the majority of their father's inheritance. They are the ones who receive the torch. And in many cases, um, the firstborn is as close to the authority of the father as you can get in this kind of uh, society. And so Paul's not emphasizing that Jesus was born. His emphasis is that he has the authority of the father. He shares in this creation, he didn't sit back and watch God do everything and say, I'm kind of bored. He says that Jesus was fully involved and invested in this creation process, and that gives him all of the authority he needs. The next is that all things are created through him. Um, Paul then lists that Jesus created, or all things, including heaven, earth, the visible world, and the invisible, are created through Jesus. And so, pardon my handwriting, I just, I went to public school. <laughs> so, you have heaven, you have earth, 
You have the visible and the invisible. And what Paul does here is he uses a literary strategy called a chiasm because it looks like the Greek letter key. You connect these different ideas based on how they're arranged in order to draw kind of a subtle point. And so the heaven correlates with the invisible world, the spiritual side of things. Earth and the visible obviously correlates to the physical, the things that are tangible and in front of us. And so Paul is getting at that if Jesus is in charge of all of the spiritual and all of the physical, you kind of come to the middle and say, what is the result of this? And the result is that that means Jesus has authority over everything. It's been really fun as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew um, to go and look at his miracles, to look at these very, very important interactions he has with people, and to observe what these say about the power and authority of Jesus. About how he's either, for the most part, expressing and revealing his authority over the spiritual world, or the physical. Um, and finally, we come back to the idea of the logos, or the wisdom. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Hebrew word for wisdom. And if Ryan has it on the top of his head, he can shout it out. But this idea that he is a controlling force in the creation and the maintaining of everything around us. Excuse me. And then our next section is verses 18, 19, and 20. The relationship and the authority that Christ has in regards to the new creation, in regards to the church, and basically the New Testament on side of the world. And here he makes just three claims about that. His first is that Jesus is the head of the church. Paul loves to use the body analogy. I said it was a metaphor. I'm not going to lie, I just forgot which is which. I use this in Colossians 3.15, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. And the general idea he goes with in these other areas is you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the body that is the church. And you have a role to play and you will contribute but in this case, Paul's emphasis is that the body does nothing without the head. He uses this uh, example, this illustration, to point out that Jesus has absolute power over the church. That he has absolute control over what it does. And um, as well as being the source of it, again, kind of obvious that the church doesn't exist, the church doesn't move, the church doesn't progress without the power and the sustenance of Christ. Um, next, Paul deals with the idea that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, which I thought was kind of strange at first because it seems like a weird title, kind of. Uh, just not something you, you usually are used to hearing. Um, 
But Paul sets this up because he has already established Jesus is the firstborn in choosing of authority over the first creation we have in Genesis, over kind of the way the world naturally worked on its own. And now that we have kind of come into a new day and age, we are in the time of the New Testament, we are in the time of the church, he is the firstborn to have overcome sin. He has been given that authority, that passage at the beginning of Revelation where he has been given the keys over death and the abyss and whatever else John lists there. So again, a powerful statement about his authority and his identity. And finally, uh, Paul's emphasis is that Jesus is the only one that can reconcile the rest of the dead. Without um, the will and the sacrifice of Jesus, you don't have... It'd be weird to call him the firstborn of the dead if no one else is going to be in this group of those who have died and have come back, those who have been resurrected in order to share in the glory and the majesty of God. And so uh, Paul kind of concludes with that always important point that in light of the authority he has had, that he has always had. He chose to use all of his authority over everything in a posture of humility. That he chooses to use these for the reconciling of everything to him. This first creation that he was involved in creating and in sustaining, as well as this newer creation of the church and the body of Christ that will continue on because he sustains it. Okay, let's, um, let's hop back into it. Um, thankfully, Matt left me a lot of times. Sunday, he left me hanging. I was rushing to get stuff done. That's okay. Most of it was my own technical difficulties. Um, okay, here's what I want to do. This is, this is the basic structure of what we have been doing for now three weeks. We'll be doing for the rest of the summer. Um, I see that we have a couple of new people here, so I'll quickly explain what this means. This is, in a nutshell, the most bare-bones way I can explain the method we are using to interpret Scripture and to apply it. So how do we, as people in the United States 2,000 years after the fact... Um, that these letters have been written, how do we read them well and then apply them to our own lives with integrity? If you, if, I mean, anyone can read the Bible poorly, just ask, you know, bookshelves everywhere. Um, but how do we read it with integrity? This is, in a very, very kind of reduced nutshell, how we're doing this. Um, and this is the kind of the, the method that undergirds even Jim's sermons and really everything that we are teaching at Sunnybrook. It runs through this method if we're pulling it from Scripture. And that is to first say, what in, in our case here, what was Paul saying to them, to the church in Colossae in the mid-50s in Asia Minor, speaking Greek under the rule of the Roman Empire as kind of you have a dispersed Greek. Take all of the cultural and social and religious and governmental factors and say, okay, what was Paul saying to them? After we ask that and that alone, we don't really care about ourselves yet, we say, okay, if what's true for them is these things we've listed out, 
what of these things are true for everyone, all time, and all cultural situations? And we say, okay, those are the truths for everyone. Now that we have those, once we understand what's true for everyone, we can say, okay, now how can we recontextualize this into Stillwater 2016 English speakers, um, Democrat, Republican, I don't care, whatever. So how do we go from the ancient world to the universal truth and then bring that back down into our particular situation? This is the method we use. Now, it gets a little complicated, murky, muddy, however you want to describe it, to do this, pro this process is really easy in, say, um, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a heavy instructional letter. It is Paul, well, let's go to 2 Corinthians. It's Paul yelling at them to stop doing what they're doing. You're a very, very bad church. First, uh, Corinth was basically Vegas of the ancient world. You guys are really bad at being a church. Let me tell you all the things you're doing wrong, and let me tell you what it looks like to stop that. It's really easy for us to say, okay, here are Paul's instructions. They're based on these overarching principles. Therefore, we can say, these are the instructions for us. With a passage, though, like this one, where Paul doesn't give a single instruction, he just waxes and wanes about the beautiful um, supremacy of Christ. He goes off on Jesus, doesn't tell the church in Colossae to do anything. What do we do here? There's really nothing that's specific to them. Really, I think Paul starts us here. And then kind of the question is, well, how do we, how do I translate ancient truths to contemporary truths? What do I do when Paul doesn't tell us to do anything? What do I do when he isn't offering any instructions, when he's just saying, here's a couple of truths? What do we do with this? Um, this... It, this, this section of Colossians and um, sections in Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 2, it's a bunch of sections of just simple, straightforward truth with very few instructions as to what you're supposed to do with that truth. It's just, this is what's true. Philippians 2, this is how humble and incredibly um, servant-minded Christ was. He died for people. 1 Corinthians 15 is, let me tell you, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that's an interesting nugget you guys can kind of jot down if, you're in, if, you, if you care too much. But the Gospels are not the best place to read about the resurrection. It's 1 Corinthians 15. It's the best chapter on the resurrection in the Bible. Um, Ephesians 2 is about the unity of the church in Christ. All of these passages have one thing in common. It's that they don't tell us to do anything. They just, here's the truth. And so, how do we make this relevant to 2016 Stillwater? And I want to, before we kind of delve into what that would look like, I want to, well, this is going to cooperate so much better than the college room this did on Sunday at the church. I want to jump into um, another example of someone who does this really well. Um, I, many of you have probably heard of John Piper. Some of you in the college ministry, I believe in the Corinthian series, probably the Hebrew series, I would guess. You watch this video. Um, this is a video called The Supremacy of Christ. Um, and it's an excerpt from one of John Piper's sermons from about 12 years ago. And it's incredibly powerful. Um, I have watched it now probably 20 times in the last 10 days. And I still get choked up every time I watch it. 
And he, he basically does his own version of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He just says, let me hold out the truth and let it weigh heavy on you. And so I want to see how does John Piper do it and what from how he does it can we learn when it comes to engaging our passage now. So let's just... My prayer is that you will know, that you will press on to know the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of His deity. Equal with God the Father in all of His attributes. The radiance of His glory and the exact image of His nature. The supremacy of His eternality that makes the mind want to explode with the imponderable thought that Jesus Christ never had a beginning. He is simply there. The absolute reality with which we reckon. We must rise to the supremacy of His eternality while all the universe, including this building and your body and this earth and all the galaxies are fragile, contingent, like a shadow in comparison to the substance of Jesus Christ. We must know the supremacy of His never-changing constancy. Oh, to have virtues that never change, a character whose commitment is constant, yesterday, today, and forever. Let us know the supremacy of His constancy. And let us know the supremacy of His knowledge that makes the Library of Congress look like a matchbox and makes all the information on the Internet look like a 1940s farmer's almanac and makes all of quantum physics and everything that Stephen Hawking has ever dreamed look like a first grade reader. We must know the supremacy of the knowledge of our Lord. We must know the supremacy of His wisdom that has never been perplexed by any problem whatsoever, nor can He be counseled by any person or any being in the universe. We must know the supremacy of His authority. All authority is mine in heaven and on earth and under the earth. No change. All authority. Changing times and seasons, removing kings, setting up kings, doing according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? We must know the supremacy of His providence, without which not a single bird in the extended reaches of the Amazon forest has ever fallen off of any limb, and without which not one hair turns white or black. We must know the providence of Jesus. We must know the supremacy of His Word, which upholds the universe by the Word of His power. All the galaxies, molecules, atoms, and subatomic reality nobody has yet dreamed of down there where no one has yet looked. We must know the supremacy of His power to walk on water and cleanse lepers and heal the lame and open the eyes of the blind and 
open the ears of the deaf and cause storms to cease and with two words to raise the dead. Lazarus, come forth, or one word to raise the dead. In your blood, I said to you, live. We must know the supremacy of his power. We, we must know the supremacy of his purity. He never sinned. He never sinned. He never had one millisecond of a bad attitude or a sinful lust. We must know the supremacy of his trustworthiness. He never breaks a promise. He always keeps his word absolutely without fail. We must know the supremacy of his justice. He will render all accounts settled in the end, in the universe, either on the cross or in hell. No injustice will remain when Christ is finished with His supreme justice. We must know the supremacy of His patience. He has endured you and me for decades. He has endured this city and brings the sun can you imagine why the sun rose on this city this morning? This wicked city, this world so full of us type sinners and he makes paradise rise in the sky in Minneapolis. What kind of patience are we dealing with here? We must know the supremacy of his servant-like sovereign obedience. Kept every one of his father's commands absolutely and in the end embraced the cross with total willingness. We must know the supremacy of his meekness and lowliness and tenderness. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax. We must know the supremacy of his wrath. One day it will explode on this world from heaven such that all who have rejected Him will call for rocks to crush their brain lest they have to face the wrath of the Lamb. We must know this when I look at the beheadings and I hear someone ask, where is your supreme Christ? My answer is really easy. He is in heaven storing up almighty wrath in fury to pour out on all those who commit such sins. That's where he is. And you better get right with him and repent or you will all likewise perish. It's not a hard question to answer biblically. We must know the supremacy of his grace which gives to the spiritually dead rebels like us Life wakens faith in hell-bound haters of God, justifies the ungodly with his own righteousness. We must know the supremacy of his love, which dies for us while we are yet sinners and gives to the absolutely undeserving the ability for ever-increasing joy in making much of him. Must know the supremacy of his gladness in the fellowship of the Trinity infinite power infinite energy infinite joy rising spilling over in the creation of a universe and becoming for you one day an inheritance for every struggling saint we must know this is what we were made for 
press on to know the Lord. We are made to know Christ. We're not made to do little diddly things. We're made to know this massive Christ. This world is little two-second slice, and then with Him or not, forever. It's what we are created to know and do and be about. And when we know Him in those ways, we have begun to know the outskirts of His supremacy. severity and invincibility and dignity and simplicity and complexity and resoluteness and calmness and depth and courage. If there's anything admirable, if there is anything worthy of praise in all the universe, it is summed up in Jesus Christ. He is always infinitely admirable in everything and over everything supreme over all galaxies and endless reaches of space over the earth from the top of Mount Everest 29,000 feet up to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean 36,000 feet down in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Rim He is sovereign and supreme over all plants and animals from the peaceful blue whale to the microscopic killer viruses He is supreme over all weather and all movements of the earth, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, earthquakes, avalanches, floods, snow, rain, sleep. He is supreme over all chemical processes that heal or destroy cancer, AIDS, malaria, flu, and all the amazing grace of antibiotics and a thousand healing drugs that we do not deserve. He is supreme over all countries and governments and armies. He's supreme over Al-Qaeda and the terrorists and the kidnappings and the suicide bombings and the beheadings. He is supreme over Bin Laden and Al-Zarqawi. He is supreme over all nuclear threats from Iran and Russia and North Korea. He is supreme over politics and elections and debates on Thursday. He's supreme over media and news and entertainment and sports and leisure. He's supreme over all education in universities, no matter what they teach. And he's supreme over all scholarship and science and research. He's supreme over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation. And he's supreme over the internet and all informational systems. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch on planet Earth over which the risen Christ does not say, Mine! And I rule it. I am supreme over We must know this Christ. And though it may not seem to you as though he holds such supreme It is but a matter of very short time until he comes with the glory of his Father and all his angels in flaming fire 
giving relief to those who trust him and absolutely destroying to the uttermost in everlasting conscious torment those who have rejected him saying where is your Oh, help us, Lord. Oh, help us see and savor the supremacy of your Son. Give yourself to this. It's my plea. Give yourself to this. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Pray that God would show you these things in his word. Swim in the Bible every day. Don't give it a little touch as you head off to do what you really like to do. Swim in the Bible every day. It is an ocean of bright, glorious, weighty, all-satisfying truth about the one for whom you were made. Give yourself to being what God created you to be. You have a brain. You have a heart. You have emotions. He wants all of it. And when He shines, blazing at the center, this little planet is just going to go where it's supposed to go. Question. Okay. We're all sinners here. And we don't know him like we ought, and we don't trust him like we ought, and we don't treasure him the way he deserves to be treasured. So what stands in the way? What's the main obstacle to knowing Christ's supremacy? The biblical answer to that is clear. The main obstacle to knowing Christ's supremacy is the absolutely just and holy wrath of God. We can't know God in our sin because the wrath of God rests on us in our sin. What we deserve from God is not knowledge of God, but judgment of God. And since we're cut off from the knowledge of God and the wrath in the wrath of God, We're cut off from purity. We're cut off from holiness. All the planets are out of order, no matter how secure and successful you feel. God doesn't owe us purity. He owes us punishment. And therefore, we are hopelessly depraved and condemned, except for one thing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God hates sin, and his wrath is infinite against sin. And we're all stamped and defined by sin. And God demands perfection. Be perfect. Your Father in heaven is perfect. You must 
be perfect. Nothing short of perfection enters my presence. And so there rests on us demands we cannot meet and a curse we cannot bear. And Christ says to his Father, May I? Because the Father had already made a covenant of redemption with the Son. You shall. And the gospel, it is the foundation of this conference. It's your only hope. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world and bore the wrath of God, the curse. Galatians 3.13, one of the most precious verses in the Bible. It became a curse for us. And he performed a righteousness for us, perfect, which we never could perform, which is now, by faith alone, imputed to you. So that you may be united to this perfect Christ, him bearing all the curse, him providing all the perfection, and know paradise is open. I can know him. I could begin to grow in knowing him. I could actually begin to enjoy him. He's not against me anymore. In fact, the wrath of God has been so totally absorbed by Jesus, and the perfection that I must produce has been so totally produced and provided by Jesus that now only one thing governs God's attitude to me, and that is mercy. All that I experience, all my pain and all my pleasures are mercy, mercy, mercy. Everything working together for my good. And therefore, paradise is open to me. And I can begin to see him, know him, study him, enjoy him, grow in him. And find the satisfaction in my soul that he was meant to be. The best gift of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. The best gift of the gospel is not the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The best gift of the gospel is not eternal life. The best gift of the gospel is seeing and savoring the supremacy of Jesus himself. That's the best gift of the gospel. And we had no access to that joy until he took our place. That's the end. Um, that is an 18-minute clip from um, this sermon that he preached in 2004 at the Desiring God Conference. Other than some of you have been twice, what would you guess was the subject of his sermon? He goes off on how beautiful and supreme Jesus is. You know what his sermon was called? Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. 
that was just that was a sermon about sexual purity. And he was speaking it at a conference full of college, college students. And I, and I didn't print out the whole sermon. You can actually find it on his website or just Google Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, John Piper. He preaches that to the question, how do I remain sexually pure? And he answers it by stop worshiping sex and start worshiping Jesus rightly. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he just goes off for almost 20 minutes on how supreme Jesus is. It's one of the most moving sermons I've ever read. Um, I haven't listened to the whole thing in its entirety. I've only ever seen this clip. And I just now, like a couple of weeks ago, found the whole sermon, and I was shocked what the subject matter was. But that's John Piper's answer to sexual lust and to sexual, sexually inappropriate behaviors. He says... Here's the solution. It's not trying harder. It's not a new sermon on morality. It's let me show you Christ. You worship sexual pleasure. You worship physical pleasure because you don't know Jesus. All that sinful stuff is just, in his words, so boring compared to Jesus. So let me tell you about Jesus. Which really helps me understand a better way to read Sections like Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where it's like, okay, this is pretty powerful. This is even amazing. I don't really know what to do with it. And it really helps me say, maybe there is, and I love how Matt pointed out that this is, this is a hymn or it's a fragment of a hymn, or if it wasn't, it surely became one shortly thereafter. Like this, is a, this is a passage about worship. Okay, well, the question then is like, how do we worship? Because John Piper's method of, of getting you to, deal, to, to live in a holy way is to first declare the truth. He spent 10, maybe 12 minutes on just how supreme Christ was before he ever got to the gospel. Then he lets you experience the truth, and then he says, let that truth transform you. If you can see, I love how he pointed out at the very end, the best part of the gospel is seeing and savoring the supremacy of Christ. And Piper is convinced that if he can get you there, then you can live a holy and righteous life, an ever-increasing um, degrees of sanctification. So, um, if experiencing truth leads to being changed by truth, I want to ask these couple of questions in our remaining minutes together. How do we experience truth? And just to kind of fast-track the conversation, I'm convinced that it is primarily through worship. And I don't want that to simply mean music on Sundays. Worship is, it comes in a number of forms. Um, But we can focus on Sunday, then we can all kind of extrapolate out on our own from there. But even on a Sunday morning, I don't want it to just be the music. Because when we we get together on, on Monday mornings to plan every service, we don't focus on just the music. We have, uh, we have several narrators in here, people that we actually have kind of lead us through the, through the service. They, are, they do the welcome, they do communion, they lead through the offering, they set up the sermon. We have a voice that is intended to kind of pull this common thread throughout the service because we believe it's more than just music. We believe that being preached the Word, hearing the Word of God spoken with authority is an act of worship and it demands a response as much as worship does as much as singing songs does. We believe that that communion is an act of worship. 
I believe that baptism is an act of worship. I believe that I'm involved in every single baptism that happens on Sunnybrook on Sunday morning. Um, if Anthony is getting baptized, yeah, but you have already baptized, so you're good. But if Anthony's getting baptized, he's up there. Even if I'm not the one doing the baptism, I'm involved in that baptism, sitting out in the pew. Because what he's doing is he's declaring to the body of Christ his allegiance to Christ and his dedication to now follow him for the rest of his life and to submit himself to the body for encouragement and for rebuke. And so when he is baptized and he comes up out of the water, and I'm always racing, I try to be the first person to clap. It's just a little game in my head. When I clap, I am making a covenant with Anthony as he's being baptized. Because now I'm saying, you are my brother and I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to hold you to what you just committed to do. You just promised to this whole room that you are going to follow Jesus. Through thick and thin, when it's hard and when it's easy, you're going to follow Him. And as your brother, I am now committing to you that we are going to do this together. And you're, you, have, you can speak to me too. So I'm involved. That is an act of worship to me when I see someone get baptized. How do we view all of that? I, I think that a good way to assess our worship and to recognize whether or not, like John Piper's um, act of worship as he proclaims the word, whether or not it can transform us is if we answer this question, who is worship for? I don't have the hand. Oh, I do. Yes, okay, so that's on there. Who is worship for? Now, the, I'll save you the answer. We all know it's for God. But here's, here's like my sub-question. What is the number one quality of genuine God-glorifying worship? So everyone wants to say, we worship to bring God glory. I took that from you. What's the next thing? What is the number one characteristic of genuine God-glorifying worship? That is a real question. A response, explain that. Mm. Yeah, I like that answer. I like that answer. I bet that's not most people's answer. You know what I bet most of our answer is? I bet... It is sincerity or authenticity. Like my worship is good if I was able to sincerely worship. If I was able to sing that song and mean it and feel it. That's when my worship was the best. And the more I think about that, because I, I feel that way too. Like, oh, I, I just, I, my mind was somewhere else. I could not stop thinking about X, Y, and Z. And therefore, I didn't sing that with any intent. I didn't even mean those. I don't even remember what we sang. I sang with no, like, vigor. There was no authenticity in my words. My words were so empty. I feel that way. And I think I feel that way because I view worship poorly. Because here's, here's a question four. I don't know how many questions I'm going to ask. I'm just going to keep questioning my way through this. What do we do if sincerity and authenticity and zeal are the number one quality of good worship? What do we do when you've just heard that song too many times and you're bored? 
or whenever your brother-in-law dies and you show up the next week and you can't sing this with any heart anymore. What do you do with that? I'm not sincere. I'm not being, I think I'm just lying by saying these words. Is my worship pointless? Is it not genuine? And I think that I, that runs through my head because I view worship as mostly about something I can give God. He doesn't want like a fake sacrifice. He wants like real like emotions behind my words. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to serve him. I'm going to make him happy by singing to him. Stroke his ego. Whatever it is that he needs, I'm going to do that. And that's because I believe that worship is something I can give him. Rather, I think a better way of thinking about worship is what if it's God doing something to us? What if, I, I don't believe an unbeliever actually has the ability to worship God. I really believe that you are spiritually dead and therefore have very little abilities to have any real interaction with God short of His grace to stir up the Spirit in you. What if the number one marker of true, genuine, biblical worship is the Spirit of God praising the Father through you such that you would be formed into the image of Jesus? What if it's something God is doing in me? What if it's not I worship God to make Him happy with my genuine thoughts and emotions? What if it's God, (laughs) I submit to this process and God forms me through worship? I think that helplessness is actually a virtue. I really do. I think that's, that's Philippians 2. I think submission to the things of God, to even those songs that I'm bored with, is, a, is, a, is something that God is doing in me. If boredom were like something that disqualifies us, why do we continue to read the book that we know so well? In a couple of weeks, Jim's going to start preaching through uh, Matthew 13, which is a famous, famous section of Scripture with about five different parables in it, most of which you probably all more or less know. He'll start reading it, and it'll start flying through your head. You know these words. Why do that? Or, what if it's, I'm going to submit myself to this and trust the Lord to work through me to conform me? What if worship is less about giving God something and more about Him forming us? Which makes reading passages like this so much more important. I have a tendency to fly through these passages. I know Colossians 15, 1.15-20. One of those very first passages that I memorized in its entirety because it is so critical and important. So you know what I do a lot of times? I skip it. Because I know it. I refuse to submit myself to repetition and boredom. What if in our submission, worship has time to form our affections and our desires? What if I don't feel like singing Christ alone, cornerstone? What if that's just, I can't do it. But over years of singing it and submitting to it, like in my heart, I truly start to believe that Jesus alone is enough, and He is the cornerstone, the foundational piece to my faith. What if that's teaching me less than I'm praising Him for those things? 
So I can go, I can come to passages like this and say, I can do this. And even though Paul doesn't give us any instructions, what if I just take this as a moment to worship and to remind myself of the truth about Jesus and to remind myself that Jesus is supreme even over the internet, as John Piper says. And over time, that kind of thought process, that discipline to read these important passages, the discipline to constantly drink a little cup of juice and eat a little cracker, which, by the way, ours is very good because it's pie crust. Just saying. Um, What if the discipline to do that, even when it feels empty, is forming my heart over time? I've seen 453,000 baptisms in my lifetime, I think. And I still... Love them. That is one of the areas of worship that, like, my heart is all in. Singing is not a talent I have. And so it's harder for my heart to get into those four songs on Sunday. But I promise you enough thought and planning goes into what songs we sing, what order we sing them in, how our narrators are feeding us into it, and how they're pulling us out of it and sending us towards the sermon. We spend time on Monday afternoons, every single week, saying, okay, how did yesterday go well? How was the sound mix? We're like, we, we believe that you have to do these things in an excellent way. How did the narration go? How was Jim's sermon? What illustration was way too long? Was his opening, was his introduction to the sermon 20 minutes long again? We talk about these things. And then we start to pick the songs for the next week. And we say, okay, we've got to be careful because these songs are forming people's hearts and desires and affections. What are they forming them towards? There are songs we've had to take out of the computers over the years because they're just so focused on us. They're not focused on Christ and proclaiming the truth about Him such that we would be formed. And so, as we look at different ways we worship throughout the week, whether that is devotional time on your own, or Sunday morning with a bunch of people, or just walking when the weather is really nice right now, whatever the worship is, a good question to ask yourself is, what is this forming me towards? What is this doing in my heart? If I did this every day for the next five years, what will my heart love? What will my heart love? To what end are we being formed? I want to read, uh, in conclusion, I want to read this passage out of Ephesians. And when I say passage, I'm sorry, but I'm going to read sections of about four chapters of Ephesians. So, um, it won't take long, I promise. I can really maybe talk too fast. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is a very important section, again, like Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Ephesians as a book, many of you might know this, some of you may not, it's six chapters long, divided directly down the middle, the first three chapters, Paul is not telling the church at Ephesus to do anything. He's just saying, let me tell you how incredible Jesus is and how incredible the church is, let me tell you the gospel and the unity that all this stuff brings, and then in chapters 4, 5, and 6 he says, therefore, live this way. And I think that we can come to a lot of these passages and say, if these are the beautiful truths What's the therefore? So I'm going to read a couple of sections from Ephesians for you. This is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A simple set of truths, powerful truths, but a simple set of truths. No instructions yet. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So he's just for three chapters now been going on and on and on about how incredible Jesus is, what he's done, and how amazing that fact is. And this is what he says then, in starting in chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, or therefore, I urge you, in light of these truths, in light of Colossians 1, in light of 1 Corinthians 15, and in light of Philippians 2, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A big section about unity. Jump down to verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's what John Piper says. He says, let me basically summarize Ephesians 1 through 3. Now, In light of sexual temptation, put off your old self. That's what John Piper says. He's doing the same thing that Paul does in Ephesians. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they have something to share with those in need. Jump down to 5.1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jump down to verse 18 of chapter 5. We'll end here. It says, instead of these vices that he's just listed, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he sums it up right there when he says that like your 
Your lives together should be governed by a posture of worship that is empowered by the Spirit in you. And the result of that will be Christ-likeness. The result of that will be living into the righteousness you already have in Christ. You are all, in God's eyes, perfectly sinless, with Christ's righteousness imputed to you. I know you still sin, but God sees Christ's righteousness, and by the giving of the Holy Spirit, He has empowered us to slowly, over time, as worship forms our hearts and desires and minds and emotions, to slowly, over time, live into that righteousness we already have. And I hope that one day we'll all, I'm looking forward to it, one day we'll all gather around the throne, and much like it says here in Revelation 4, I think we will live like this. When at Revelation 4, starting in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, that is the Lamb, that is Jesus, and who lives forever and ever, that's the Alpha and the Omega title, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, an act of submission. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. I hope, and it is my prayer for all of us, that we would adopt a posture of worship that submits ourselves, lays down our crowns like that, It says, because you created everything and you are supreme, like John Piper said, and you own every inch of everything that exists, I'm going to trust myself to the process of worshiping you well so that you will form my heart to know you and to love you better. Worship is not something I can give to anyone. I believe it's something that is happening to me. And that's why I read passages like Colossians 1. That is a beautiful passage where Paul is worshiping And he wrote it down for us. And through that, we can worship too. Let me pray, and uh, we can be done. Father, thank you for um, this group. Thank you for this church and for a body of believers that possess your spirit and represent you in this city. It is our plea, it is our humble prayer that you would lock on to our hearts and our minds and you would shape us into ever-increasing degrees of holiness and Christ-likeness. Give us the desire to spend as much time as we're able in your word, in prayer, in worship. Not as something that we're giving to you, but as something you're using to shape us and to form us. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and help us to move in that direction ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.